right now on Matter of Fact. When a conviction is finally overturned. I wish my dad was here because he, he went to his grave um, with me being locked away in prison for the remainder of my life. Understanding the real cost of injustice and... Hello, how are you? A look at the future of work. There is a knee-jerk reaction to say whoever has not been working over the last year and a half is just lazy. That is the, the quick response to it. Uh, that's just not the fact as well. What will it take to rebuild America's workforce? Plus... We are the first same-sex couple to go out there and compete with other couples. Native American dancers breaking down barriers. Us being two-spirit and being very public has created the conversation for a lot of Native homes. Meet the couple dancing to express identity and gain acceptance. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. What happens when the justice system gets it wrong? Someone behind bars is freed. After years or decades of time served, they're released to an uncertain future. That's the story of Sean Ellis of Dorchester, Massachusetts. At age 19, he was convicted of murdering a Boston police officer. In 2015, after spending more than 21 years in prison, he was freed, but still faced a weapons charge. As of last week, his record now reads, all charges dropped. I'm fortunate that I'm able to, to, to be able to like see my mom. I at one point had a fear that she would pass away while I was in prison, um, and I don't have to have that fear anymore. Ellis's story isn't rare. Studies suggest about 6% of prisoners are wrongfully convicted. Jason Flum is an advocate to free those prisoners. He's a successful record executive and a founding board member of the Innocence Project. He's also the host of the podcast, Wrongful Conviction. Jason Flum, it's so nice to have you with me. Uh, will you start by explaining how you first got your interest in, I guess, the injustice in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and you know, thank you. Um, we call it the criminal legal system these days because there's so little justice in it. But I got my start so sort of serendipitously in 1993 when I just happened to pick up the New York Post and there was a story about a kid who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State. And this story blew my mind and threw all my, what I thought I knew about fairness and equity and justice out the window. And I decided I had to do something about it. So make a very long story short, I only knew one criminal defense lawyer. I got him to take the case pro bono. Six months later, ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York, holding this kid's mother's hand when the judge banged the gavel down and, and sent him home. And that's what that was my moment when I said, now I know what to do with the rest of my life. What were some of the things that you began to realize as you got into it? Like, oh, when you're in jail, you haven't been convicted of anything. Like, you might be there because you just don't have cash. That amount of cash could be $250, right? You're just snatched away from your family, your school, your job, your church, your community, and you're put into a cage, right? We call it human caging. We no longer call it jailing, right? It's a cage. And, and why? Just because you were arrested and you don't have money to pay. That's a violation of the Sixth and the Fourteenth Amendments, right? Because it's neither equal protection nor due process. When you have two people who are arrested and charged, but not convicted, as you said, of the same crime, but one goes home and the other goes to jail. And in many cases, it, let's say the person is convicted, 
sometimes they've served more time in jail than they would have gotten had they been convicted of a crime. And the fact is it happens too often that someone is, it may be a crime that you don't even get jail time for, right? Even if you're convicted, but you're in there. And of course, then we have what we call the guilty plea problem, right? So approximately 97% of all felony convictions in the United States are a result of guilty pleas. 11, 12 million people a year in America going in and out of our jails and prisons. And so your, your lawyer, who you may never have met until the day of your trial, and who's juggling hundreds of cases, says, look, Soledad, uh, take a plea. Just take a plea. I, you know, you're going to get 40 years if you don't take a plea. You can get out on time served, or maybe you'll get a year. And people make this sort of Sophie's choice every day, every hour in courtrooms across this country. You've said about your podcast, and you're wearing the T-shirt of your podcast, uh, that you wanted to educate the pools of jurors. People who would eventually become a juror would understand better the system that they were going to be weighing in on in some capacity. Have you found that you've been able to, to move the needle on that? Most people believe, an overwhelming majority of people believe, if someone's in the defendant's chair, they must be guilty, because otherwise, why would they be there? And we all want to believe that the system works and that it's fair, but it's not and it doesn't. And so I think everyone needs to remember that we're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty in this country. We must remember that every time an innocent person is locked up, the guilty person remains free. And that person will often inflict horrible damage on their community, on people who never deserved it. And if our system had worked properly, they wouldn't have been free in the first place. And the innocent person wouldn't have suffered. Jason Flom, so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Next on Matter of Fact. In the industry, we have a joke. Is it September 1st yet? And obviously, September 1st is where benefits will end. If millions are out of work, why are businesses struggling to hire? A look at the future of the workforce. And later... After four years of separation, reunited, a happy ending for a family forced apart at the border. A $300 a week jobless benefit is at the heart of an emotional public debate. In many cases, that payment is more than people earned in weekly wages, and some suggest it may be keeping would-be workers from taking available jobs, causing a labor shortage. The Labor Department says unemployment stands at about 6%, with almost 10 million people actively looking for work. To get a perspective on hiring needs and challenges, we asked Greg Stilatos, the owner of six small grocery stores in Chicago, to tell us about his experience as he tries to rebuild his business. Yeah, this year has been definitely a year of challenges. Hi, welcome to Gold Grocer. Can I help you find anything? We've been very fortunate where we were deemed an essential business. And so not only did we not shut down, we actually had to bring extra people on board to help fill the extra business that we've been having. We had a lot of people to, um, to select from at the beginning. And now with COVID and, and so many other restrictions in place, um, you see that definitely shrinking up quite a bit. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Is this over today? That'll be it. Awesome. There is a knee-jerk reaction to say whoever has not been working over the last year and a half is just lazy. That is the quick response to it. Uh, that's just not the fact as well. If what you're getting paid now versus what you were getting paid before is higher, then it 
short term, it certainly makes sense. Everything's looking awesome. Awesome, man. Cool. Thanks so much. All right, we'll chat some more. As an employer, I look at resume gaps and I say, all right, what has this individual been doing over the last year and a half? Um, have they been, if they haven't been working, have they been learning new skills, have been adding value or productivity? There's lots of different things that I look into that helps me paint a picture of, is this person employable? As uh, employers, I feel like we need to make that first move and we need to see what we can do to change either our operations, change the way that we give responsibilities out to help people lead a better life. We need to get more creative um, and find ways to either cut costs, um, increase margins in order to give people a, a, a living wage that they deserve and that they have relied on. It's always about understanding the other side of the fence, right? And saying, um, what can we do to um, service both of our needs and create something that's long lasting, right? And something that's for the long term. We know the COVID-19 recession hit service, retail, travel, and hospitality industries the hardest, and those most affected by job loss, lower income workers, women, and people of color. The supplemental unemployment payments have provided cash to pay rent, buy food, and cover medical and utility bills, and they've become a lifeline for recipients. But are they discouraging people from getting back to work? We asked labor economist Valerie Wilson of the Economic Policy Institute to give us her perspective. The idea that overly generous UI benefits are keeping people uh, from taking jobs is not a new one. We heard many of these same arguments coming out of the Great Recession, and there were states that decided to make sharp cuts in UI benefit eligibility as a result of that. However, employment in those states did not grow any faster after the cuts than it was growing before the cuts. And in fact, we've actually had pretty strong employment growth over recent months. Uh, although in April, things slowed a bit, the strongest growth in April was in the leisure and hospitality industry. That stands in contradiction to the idea uh, that people are not coming back to work because of UI benefits, because people in leisure and hospitality are more likely to be low-wage workers who would be eligible for a benefit that may be higher than their regular pay. The other things that we know about people in leisure and hospitality industry is that they're also more likely to be in jobs that require them to be in person and have a lot of in-person contact. So if employers in that industry need more workers, it's reasonable that they would offer uh, higher wages to compensate those people in part for the increased risk that they face in coming back to work. We also know that large numbers of women workers are in the leisure and hospitality industry. And during the pandemic, women's employment has been constrained due to care responsibilities, since many schools and daycares are either still closed or open only on a limited basis. This simply is not the time to start making cuts to a program that has been such a vital lifeline to many of our country's most vulnerable workers and their families, and certainly not under the guise of solving a problem that there is limited evidence of. For another view on the debate about jobless benefits and the future of work, go to matteroffact.tv. Coming up, a two-spirit couple honoring tradition. They may not talk about it as they see us dancing, but there's a conversation to be had on the ride home. How they interpret the dance of culture and identity. 
Welcome back to Matter of Fact. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. It's had that designation since 1949. And mental health organizations across the country call it a time to build resilience. Resilience is often fragile. For members of the LGBTQ community, mental health struggles can emerge as a result of traumatic experiences, the trauma of discrimination, trauma of harassment, trauma of rejection. Experts say resilience is dependent on radical self-acceptance. A young two-spirit couple from Nevada, Sean and Adrian, say radical acceptance has helped them break barriers in their Native American community. They're competitive sweetheart dancers, taking part in a celebration previously reserved for traditional couples at Native powwows. Here's their story. We are not the typical sweetheart pair that you would see out in the arena or dancing anywhere. Um, we are the first same-sex couple to go out there and compete with um, other couples. I am Adrian, I am Two-Spirit, I am also Shoshone Bannock, Northern Ute, and San Carlos Apache. I am Sean, I am Navajo, I am an artist, and this is my partner, Adrian. When I was younger, I, I can't think of a queer person publicly that represented me or my my lineage or my 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 culture and I never saw that in a space that which we're doing today we see our dancing as a way to honor our heritage and who we are so sweethearts is really being out there in that arena and showing your love and compassion for one another. We as a two-spirit couple have faced a lot of challenges, you know, being out there and just being open with ourselves and our identity. We've pushed for that acceptance. We really fought for that space to be out there and amongst people. And it made our voices stronger and our presence stronger. We're, we're always there to encourage and support everyone else that is trying to, to be vocal. And I think it's, um, more important than ever for us as Native Americans or indigenous people to speak up about um, our identities and the issues that matter to us. It chokes me up to talk about it because we, um, we hear so many times of, of our two-spirit brothers and sisters um, leaving this world and leaving this world in a way that we don't want them to leave. It's really the, the power that, the love that we get from other people and especially other Two-Spirit relatives and friends that keep pushing us forward. I know that us being Two-Spirit and being very public has created the conversation for a lot, of, a lot of Native homes. So they may not talk about it as they see us dancing, but there's a conversation to be had when they get in the car or on the ride home. And often it's very positive. In the last few decades, we've seen a much bigger acceptance within our Native American communities of our Two-Spirit people, and seeing that people standing up for them, making spaces, and protecting them, which is nice to see and very you know, hopeful for us that a lot of tribes and individual nations start recognizing their LGBT plus queer members and you know their rights and um, their identities. We've learned that we can change the the opinion almost of what people may think Two-Spirit is and then when they see us and how we carry ourselves and represent the community. Be proud, be true, keep dancing.
The painting of Adrian and Sean was done by Native American artist Derek No Son Brown. He's of Shoshone, Bannock, Klamath, and Ashinobi ancestry. You can view other stories about identity, like from disability activist Lydia XC Brown or comedian Gina Brion and journalist and author of Dear America, Jose Antonia Vargas, all at matteroffact.tv. It's all part of our listening tour special to be an American, identity, race, and justice. Next on Matter of Fact, when a police officer abuses their power, who pays? Why the state of New Mexico says taxpayers won't. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You Are Too Busy. New Mexico is the second state to remove the legal defense known as qualified immunity. The Supreme Court created this doctrine 40 years ago, and critics say it shields police and government officials from accountability. Supporters say it protects an officer's ability to make snap decisions during potentially dangerous situations. Qualified immunity sets a high bar in civil cases when victims or their families try to sue for a violation of civil rights. When police officers violate civil rights, it's taxpayers who foot the bill. For example, New York City paid Eric Garner's family $5.9 million. Baltimore paid $6.4 million for their involvement in the death of Freddie Gray. The decision to remove qualified immunity in New Mexico came last summer during a special session in response to the murder of George Floyd by former officer Derek Chauvin in Minnesota. Colorado was the first state to end qualified immunity. That happened in June of 2020. Ahead on Matter of Fact, a family torn apart at the border gets the reunion they've prayed for. Share the moment. an update to a story we shared with you earlier this year. A mother from Honduras separated from her two sons when they crossed the border. The result of the zero tolerance program of the Trump administration. Well, this month we witnessed an emotional reunion. 37-year-old Keldi Mabel Gonzalez Brebe de Zuniga got to embrace her boys for the first time in nearly four years. It was 2017 when the boys and their mother crossed into New Mexico asking for asylum. Because of the Trump administration policies, they were separated. Gonzalez Brebe was charged with illegal entry and then deported. Her sons sent to live with family in Pennsylvania. Well, last December, matter-of-fact correspondent Jessica Gomez visited the Mexican border city of Juarez. The distraught mother told us she had fled to the United States with her sons after several family members were killed in Honduras. To stay in the U.S., her asylum petition still needs to be approved. The ACLU, which is helping with reunification efforts at the border, estimates another 1,000 families are waiting to be reunited. And sadly, they say parents of another 450 children have not been located. Lots of lives hanging in the balance at the border. We're obviously gonna keep you updated on this story. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we will see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about the Innocence Project and criminal justice reform, the challenges for small businesses looking to hire workers, the debate over unemployment benefits, wages, and the future of work, or a twin spirit couple using traditional tribal dances to break barriers, just go to matteroffact.tv. And 
Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.